Hello, everyone, and welcome to Employment Matters, a legal and HR podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. In today's special feature podcast, we'll explore the growing trend toward union organizing in tech companies such as Amazon, Google, and Medium. And while the situation with each company is different, there is a common denominator. Many of these tech employees don't feel their voices are heard or taken very seriously. And unlike traditional bread and butter issues typically found in union campaigns, much of the emphasis in these efforts have been on social justice, workplace respect and equality, and the company's mission and priorities. Leading today's program is Steve Hirschfeld, managing partner of Hirschfeld Kramer in California. Steve is also the founder and CEO of the Employment Law Alliance. As a bonus, we had the chance to survey some of our listening audience in advance and gather questions, and our panel will be using these questions in their commentary. Let's join Steve as he introduces the program and moderates the discussion. Thanks, Pete. Hello, everyone. I'm really excited that we are tackling this very timely topic today, which is unionization in the tech sector. Why don't I get started first by introducing our panelists, if I could. Our panelists are Jacqueline Rao, who's at Dinsmore & Scholl in Ohio. We've got Bert Fishman, who is with Fortney Scott in D.C., Allison Williams, who's with Steptoe and Johnson in West Virginia, Zach Weissman, who's with Ray Quinney in Utah, and we've got Eduardo Suarez Solar, who's with Gunster in Miami, Florida. What we tried to do today was to put together a group of panelists that would really represent a broad range, both geography-wise as well as industries, to give us, I think, some pretty interesting insight on this topic. And speaking of insight, let me just spend a minute kind of setting the tone for today, and then I'm turning things over to our speakers. The first suggest to you is that unions are cool. Well, at least that's according to Vice Media, who reports that being pro-union will be the hottest business trend in 2020. Let me repeat, being pro-union will be the hottest trend in 2020. Celebrities are in on the action. I mean, Danny Glover, just visited Amazon, uh, Amazon plant in Alabama to issue support for the union. The day after President Biden was fired, the NLRB general counsel, who was perceived as too pro company, Sarah Jessica Parker from uh, Sex and the City fame tweeted, quote, goodbye, Peter Robb. Now, who even knew other than a couple of us that Peter Robb was the general counsel of the NLRB? But that shows you that the union movement is on the front burner of sort of pop culture today. I mean, Joe Biden did a promo video supporting the union. Even Marco Rubio, for heaven's sakes, got into the action. The Republican from Florida came out in support of the union organizing effort in Amazon. This is creating some strange bedfellows. And while organizing at that tech giant Amazon is unusual, the issues involved in that organizing are not. They're bread and butter issues of wages and working conditions. But the Google organizing is an entirely different kettle of fish. Their focus is not on wages, not on benefits or working conditions. Well, how, how could it be? Those folks are treated like royalty. For them, it's all about the belief that they need to hold management accountable for the company's motto, don't be evil. According to their key union organizer, an African-American Google software engineer, what he has said was their effort is more akin to focusing on the physicists. This is, these are his words. The physicists who worked on 
the Manhattan Project, that they were so compartmentalized in their work that most of them never understood what they were doing was ultimately going to lead to the creation of the atom bomb. And what they're doing is banding together because they want to have a say on the impact and the direction of the company and its business. This is an entirely new situation. So what's going on here? I mean, why are humans suddenly fashionable, particularly with millennials and Gen Z? And what, if anything, can your company do to minimize the chance that you're next? That's our focus today. What we're going to cover is a couple things. Number one, what are the issues that are driving human organizing, particularly in the tech sector? Number two, how is the pandemic and remote work exacerbating this trend? Three, what is a non-traditional union? How does it work? That's the non-traditional union that we've got at Google, which is what's the so-called minority union. And, and how does that all factor in here? Fourth, what's the impact of the Biden administration, social media, and Wall Street investors having on these unionization efforts? And then finally, perhaps most importantly, what proactive steps can you take right now to minimize the risk of unionization? That's our game plan. And so what I want to do first is turn things over to my friend Jacqueline Rao and Allison Williams, who's going to sort of set the tone for us and talk about what are the issues that are driving folks to unionization and how the, the pandemic is impacting the environment today. So if you take it away, folks, thank you. Thank you, Steve. And good afternoon, everyone. Excited to be here today and talk to you about this. Jacqueline and I are working together in our, our presentation of our topic. So we are going to tackle the first two bullet points that Steve just read for you, which are workplace issues driving union organizing and how the pandemic and remote work is exacerbating trends within the sector. So to be even further mapping out for you where we're going, I'm going to start today by talking with you about millennials and Generation Z and their expectations in the workforce and for purposes of work and why that really matters here when we're having a discussion about the, the popularization of unions and particularly in the tech sector. And I'm going to flip the mic over to Jacqueline, who's going to talk to you about social justice concerns and lack of response by the companies or human resources department. And then we're going to talk some about isolation and lack of connection with coworkers in the, the era of the pandemic and how that also is tying into this, this drive toward unionization. And then finally, Jacqueline will wrap it up before turning it back over to Steve, talking about company response to pandemic protocols. So with all that in mind, I'll get started talking about Gen Z and the millennial generations. And I know that many people on this webinar probably already have have heard many things about these generations and have maybe studied them for recruiting efforts and retention efforts. But I think it's worth sort of going through some of the traits that these generations have because it directly leads to what we're seeing in these unionization efforts. So first, talk about millennials. They get a lot of flack, but they're you know, making up more than 50% of the workforce currently. And in the next 10 years, will be 75% of the workforce. And so certainly it's something to pay attention to in terms of what they desire, what drives them, and, and how to keep them in the workplace. So millennials are individuals who are born from 1981 to 1995, roughly. And to them, they're one of the first generations where wages aren't as important as some other factors in the workplace. And so that is significant to this discussion today. Additionally, they're not comfortable with corporate rigid 
structures. They're not interested in bureaucracy. They want some flexibility and fluidity in the workplace. They're really turned off by information silos. To pick up a little bit on what Steve said earlier, they really want some transparency. They want feedback. They want work-life balance. We've all heard that. They're committed to diversity. And they differ from Gen Z in that they prefer to communicate through technology. So turning our attention to Gen Z, they're the next generation after the millennials, right? 1996, 2015, most diverse generation we've had yet. And when I'm talking about diversity, I'm talking about racial diversity, gender diversity, fluidity, orientation, not just sort of traditional diversity as we think about it. They value salary as a condition of employment even less than millennials. And so they are really interested in working places where they're engaged and the work is interesting. They're really committed to being good global citizens and they want their companies to also be good global citizens. They value community engagement and social justice initiatives. Again, they value diversity, transparency in the workplace. And unlike the millennials, they really want in-person interactions in the workplace and they want to engage with their managers face-to-face. So even though they may be the most technologically savvy, they crave that in-person connection. And so why is, why is it important to have a discussion about this is that these are really traits that are, are driving what we're seeing here. You know, traditionally, the tech sector has been sort of impervious to unionization because as Steve pointed out, they have the highest salaries and Tony benefits packages. And so there's not been a need for unionization with regard to them. However, these generations are starting to really look at what they need to be happy in the workplace and how they can achieve what they want when large companies and even small companies aren't listening. And so what they're really demanding is that their workplaces align with their political and personal beliefs. And and recently I watched a webinar put on, I'll give a little shout out to Cornell University, where they had two union representatives that were the primary speakers and they were young and educated, they were diverse and they are taking on Amazon and Google and they're taking them to task with regard to treatment in the workplace. And and really when you listen to what they had to say, they were echoing many of these values that we were just talking about. They want things like they want management to listen to what they have to say. They want management to care about what they care about in terms of impact on the global community or on the local communities. They want to engage in discussions about inequality in the workplace and discrimination, sustainability, and other things of that nature. And so I think one of the things that we'll focus on a little bit this afternoon, and I'll pass the mic to Jacqueline so that she can do this, is sort of the interest and the focus on social justice causes that are driving some of these union efforts. Yeah, thank you, Allison. That is a large focus with the generational focus. 80% of millennials expect their companies to make a public commitment to good corporate citizenship. And for the next generation that Allison was talking about, Generation Z, a full 90% of Generation Z's polled say that they support social justice issues. So social justice issues are becoming more and more of a focus for corporations. And it's not just at the corporate level for consumers. Workers also have these sort of expectations. When workers seek to unionize more and more, they're primarily focusing on social justice issues. In a recent study by the UK-based group Access Partnership, they discovered that white-collar workers, when they seek to unionize, seek to address a more expansive set 
of economic, social, and political issues such as social justice, climate change, workforce diversity, and how and by whom their technology is being used. Now, this is really unique because traditionally when workers are organized, they're focusing on conditions that directly impact their own ability to earn a living. But this focus is more external on external factors outside of the workplace. And the tech sector has been leading the way on this. Over the last several years, activism among employees in the tech se sector has grown exponentially. In 2019 alone, there are over 100 reported tech worker actions, many involving hundreds and sometimes thousands of workers. That's three times the number of tech worker actions than in 2018 and nine times the number of worker actions than in 2017. And there's a couple of unique aspects of the tech sector that support this increased focus on activism. One of it is that tech workers tend to have a higher percentage of younger workers than other industries. And then also the manner of work also plays a role. It leads to employee activism in that it's less hierarchical and more team-based. So we saw the start of this a couple of years ago and in 2016, around the time of the last presidential election. In 2016, there was a group called the Bay Area Tech Solidarity Group, and they created a Never Again Pledge. The Never Again Pledge was created out of concern about how the government was using the technology that they were working on and the resources that were available to tech companies. Specifically, the pledge was concerned about how personal information was being collected and available in certain databases. At the time, the pledge was specifically created in response to a presidential campaign pledge about creating a official registry of Muslims, a Muslim registry. And once workers got involved in this sort of activity, they saw a direct result of their actions. Before the pledge, there was only one tech company, Twitter, that officially went on the record opposing this registry. But after workers got involved in this pledge, almost every major American tech company went on the record opposing this idea. And so workers were able to see a direct connection from their activism to changes at the company. And more recently, we've seen that social justice issues and race-based discrimination have emerged as a focus. In 2018, as many of you know, there's a global walkout at Google where 1,700 workers protested how the company handled sexual harassment allegations. Now, that was in response to a New York Times article where it revealed that Google had paid millions of dollars in exit packages to executives who had been accused of misconduct. Now, the walkout also translated over to some workplace issues because when the workers walked out, they presented a list of demands, including how Google internally handles sexual harassment. And this kind of demonstrates how social activism and workplace concerns can overlap because the demands specifically by Google workers in 2018 were, one, ending the private use of arbitration agreements among employees, two, publication of a transparency report that reports instances of sexual harassment, three, disclosures of salaries and commissions, an employee representative on the company board, and a chief diversity officer that could speak directly to the board of directors. And I think I want to talk a little bit about two recent examples where you can really see how social justice issues kick-started unionizing efforts at companies. So the first company I want to talk about is Kickstarter. I'm sure most of you are familiar with what Kickstarter is, but Kickstarter creates crowdfunding 
for different ideas and ventures. So in 2018, there's a graphic artist that was raising money on Kickstarter to bring a comic book, which he had entitled Always Punch Nazis to Life. This comic book created quite a bit of news and the conservative media wrote a story about the project and Kickstarter decided to pull that. Well, employees were very upset about their perceived response to Kickstarters getting involved in, in this political issue. And this triggered employees to approach the Office and Professional Employees International Union about how the company was approaching items. And in January of 2020, the employees voted to be represented by that union, which was one of the first major tech sectors. One that Steve referenced in his opening remarks was Google. Here this year, workers at Google formed the Alphabet Workers Union the Alphabet Workers Union is a minority union, which we'll talk a little bit about later in the program. The critical thing for, in terms of social justice, is that the union specifically said that they were not organizing around specific issues, but instead they were more generally aiming to promote inclusivity, ethical decision-making, and greater transparency. Uh, one of the organizers said that their goal is to ensure that tech companies use technology to make the world a better place. And you can see this in their actions as well. One of their first official acts was to write an open letter on YouTube to executives criticizing the company for what they viewed to be a lackluster response to the incidents on January 6th of this year. They've also reached out and expressed concern about Google's treatment of ethics researchers. So a common theme is apparent in both of those examples, that the union effort is really triggered when workers are dissatisfied with how the, they perceive their companies to respond to social justice issues. And this has really grown in the pandemic, and I'll turn the microphone over to Allison to talk a little bit more about how the pandemic has exasperated these issues. Hey, before we do that, I want to ask Jacqueline and Allison together to follow up, Jacqueline, on the point you just raised, which is the Google situation is interesting because, as you may know, there was that employee who was fired for writing that long blog post that was perceived to be on the right instead of on the left. And a lot of these employees, particularly Gen Zs, as you mentioned, are expecting these companies to come out on what amounts to liberal progressive causes, but that doesn't make up the whole workforce. So for example, you know, just this last week we have in Atlanta, all this pressure being placed on Delta and Coca-Cola to take a position opposing this Georgia laws that were gonna restrict voting. So how do you, you guys have any idea how to navigate that? Because right, so you've got, you've got this perception that, you know, you've got Gen Z folks that want them to take, these companies take progressive steps but then you've got another group of employees say, well, wait a minute, those aren't my politics. I don't want my company to take a position on politics or certainly not one that's different than mine. How do you, what advice do you even give to a company about how to thread that needle? I don't know if either Allison or Jacqueline, you've got any thoughts on that. I don't have any answers. It's a tough one. Sure. Well, I can start off and then I'll let Allison fill in. You know, that is one of the largest changes that we've seen. And it's not only in unionizing efforts, but it's also in you know, brand initiatives. It used to be that a company was ranked on the list of the best, you know, most ethical brands if they donated to causes. But now millennials and Gen Zs really expect their companies to take a proactive stance on issues like you're addressing. And so that is, is a trend that's shifting. And I think it will be difficult to navigate due to the diversity of views there that you expressed. Allison, any thoughts on that? And I know you also want to talk about some other issues related to the pandemic. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I would just add exactly what Jacqueline said. It's, it's going to be tricky to navigate. I think companies just have to make decisions about where their their corporate values are and whether that's, you know, with the sort of popular vote of the people, meaning their employees, or if they're going to just root down and move forward with whatever it is that their corporate stance is on those things and be inflexible. Because I, I think it's, in some ways, it's a no-win situation to your point, Steve, because you have competing views on what is right or just or ethical. And so I think what will end up happening over time is that you'll attract a workforce that is in line with whatever your corporate values are and risk losing talented people that don't align with those those values. But I don't know how else you can sort of juggle those competing priorities. So Allison, tell us about the pandemic and how you see the pandemic playing a role in all this. Sure. So really, and I'll let Jacqueline talk about response to safety and those issues, but, you know, one of the things that, that I really wanted to talk about today was sort of the, the isolation of working from home, social distancing in the workplace. You know, one of the things that I've been reading a lot about is the unionization efforts at Amazon and how one of the drivers there is sort of a feeling of isolation by the warehouse workers that, they're being managed by an app on their phone. They're being measured in their performance by that same app. There's been some reports, although I haven't read to see if they've been substantiated, but that these employees are being disciplined through the app on their phone. And so in, in many ways, they're not communicating with their managers or their coworkers and how that is also driving this feeling that there's a need to to organize and to be part of something and to be part of a group where you can share your concerns and your feelings with a human being. And an extension of that, of course, is is the remote work. So we've we've so many workers now that are home that are not seeing their coworkers or their managers in person regularly. News reports out there about them feeling isolated. Some people love that isolation, but others not so much they want to be, you know, with their cohorts. And so again, I think that this is an opportunity for unionization because it gives people a sense of a commonality. It gives them that sense of community and, and then they can use that commonality and community to drive the workforce and shape it in the way that they collectively think is best. And so I think that as we continue to be disconnected because of pandemic, there's just going to be more opportunity for growth amongst union popularity. Jacqueline, I know we're getting short on time, so I'll pass the mic back to you to talk some about the safety concerns and how those may be also driving this renewed interest in unionization. Thanks, Allison. So as you mentioned, you know, although there has been organizing remotely over Zoom, you know, employees are also having the effects of the pandemic when they're coming to work in person. So in addition to the well-known union campaign going on at Amazon's Bessemer, Alabama facility, in another Amazon warehouse earlier this year in New York, employees protested insufficient or inconsistent enforcement of safety measures during the pandemic. And the lead organizer of that protest specifically said that he initiated the protest because he arrived at work to find a colleague who was visibly sick but was continuing to work. And so this concern about safety protocols in response to COVID has been echoed not only in the tech sector, but across industries. There's a sick out 
by workers at Whole Foods Market in early March of 2020 at the beginning stages of the pandemic. There's also been protests by nurses in the Bronx over a lack of protective equipment. And then similarly at Instacart, there was a nationwide walkout that company officials believe thousands of employees participated in. And their chief concerns were protective materials like hand sanitizer and disinfectant wipes and then hazard pay and sick pay. So we think that the failure to address some of these issues have really started to spur up organizing in a variety of sectors. Great. So why don't we do this? I appreciate those comments. What I'd like to do now is move things on to my buddy, Bert Fishman, who's right in the heart of things at DC. Bert, tell us about this whole non-traditional union stuff and what a minority union is. I, I'll be honest with you. I had to go back to my old law books to try to figure it out. I hadn't dealt with one in so many years. Tell us about what that is and how that applies in these types of situations. Well, thanks, Steve, and thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm honored to be on with such a distinguished panel. And I have a, a slightly different view of things than the previous speaker, although you're going to hear a lot of the same themes. I have a feeling you're going to hear a lot about Google and a lot about social justice because that's the stuff that's in the air. But non-traditional workers' organizations, whatever you call them, minority unions, uh, workers' associations, opportunity centers, workers' centers, and many other names, seems to me to present us with an ideal prism with which to view the legal landscape that we have. The first thing to kind of remember is that all of them are creatures of technology. Absent the kind of communication that's available now on the Internet, I doubt that any of these organizations would have an opportunity to organize themselves and communicate with one another. So tech unions start with tech, and I think we have to remember that. We are really in a context that is very late 20th century, early 21st century. The other thing to remember is that there are some common themes behind all of them, and it's a belief that uh, current labor laws and, for the most part, existing unions are not able to address their concerns or to serve their interests. And there appears to be a widespread belief that labor law is weighted against workers, is weighted against union organizing, that it's cumbersome, that it's slow, that it's ineffective as an organizing tool, that enforcement is subject to political pressure and political appointees, and that the penalties for intimidation and opposition to union tactics uh, are de minimis and for the most part, delay is rewarded. In addition, you have too many workers that are excluded from traditional labor law and from the protections of employment law. We've all heard about minimum wage, overtime, even Title VII protections. And they're also excluded from the right to unionize. The famous Uber memo from Peter Robb, of whom we just heard at the beginning, Steve, who issued a memo saying that gig workers simply are not employees and cannot unionize. So that means that independent contractors, gig workers, startup owners, and back from the 30s, agricultural and domestic workers are not even in the universe of people who can be protected by unions or by the labor laws. And all of that is creating this pressure to find some other mechanism to have your voice heard. Tech companies are an obvious choice, but traditionally they have been very difficult to organize because the workforce is often highly diffuse, it's highly mobile, it's highly independent, it's usually well compensated, and there are 
perhaps as many as a third of the workforce of many of these uh, companies are contractors, not employees. And although they may like unions in the abstract, most of them are unfamiliar with unions because, frankly, fewer than 6% of the private sector workforce is unionized. And for some of these people, the most they've heard about real unions is probably from watching Hoffa or Goodfellows, and it's probably not a good impression. So on top of all that, we've just heard about the impact of remote work, which I think is a a uh, serious factor in undermining the ability to create a community of interest, which is a technical term in labor law for how you get a collective bargaining unit. And since I've talked about labor law a bit, uh, in order to see how different these minority unions and worker centers are, I'd like to give you a little sense of what traditional labor law is like. And it's all based on what it's called the majoritarian principle. And under a contemporary labor law in return for being elected by a simple majority of eligible workers and get certified as a as a union under the NLRA you have a duty to represent all workers the duty of fair representation the flip side of that is that the employer is prohibited from dealing with any other group of employees or the interest of any other group of employees, be they dissidents, be they a rump union, be they a minority union. So there's this balance. If you, if you have a union, the employer must deal only with that union. If you're a dissident group that doesn't particularly like that union, you're really out in left field. You're quite alone. But that is not the whole story. Another part of traditional labor law is something called Section 7. It was designed back in the 30s to provide protection for people who wanted to organize unions, concerted protected activity. It has been expanded in recent years to cover all workers, union or non-union, and any conduct or speech relating to their work. And that has been the springboard that gets us to where we are today. It's a long preface, I'm sorry, but we're now here talking about minority unions and workers' centers, and they're neither fish nor fowl. They're organizations made up of groups of individuals, often including employees, temporary employees, independent contractors, and lots of other people who could not be in a collective bargaining unit. And as you've heard from the previous speakers, and they said so probably far better than I, they seek to advocate for workers' rights and social justice issues in the 21st century. They're usually non-dues-paying organizations. And they use the Section 7 rights I've just described to organize rallies, <laughs> to do unofficial work stoppages. You've heard of two or three, the famous one at Google, of course. They buy TV ads. They urge consumer boycotts. They support local and national issues and candidates. I'm sure everybody... Uh, listening in today has heard of Justice for Janitors and Fight for 15. Those are the kinds of issues that the minority unions and workers' centers are advocating. Believe it or not, some of them are actually funded by unions who realize that they can't get into some of these organizations by any other means. However, just to remind you, it is illegal for an employer to bargain with a minority union if a union is present. And if a union is present, they must deal solely with the union. Nonetheless, these rump groups, these worker associations, and these minority unions have proven to be 
extremely effective. They're very focused. They're very potent. They are very effective pressure groups with which many employees feel they must, many employers feel they must respond because of public interest. It's an excellent example of bargaining over the head of the employer. It's really the main focus of what a minority union or a workers' center deals with. There is another variation on the theme. It's one you've heard about, and that is the Alphabet Workers' Union, which really is a variation on a variation. It's not affiliated with a union. It declares that a traditional union would not fit an international interconnected tech conglomerate like Google because it has so many separate entities, Google Translates, Chrome, Gmail, so many others. And there's no desire to be a traditional union, but they are a dues-collecting organization, and their dues are significant, 1% of total comp, which for some people probably makes this the highest union dues in the country. But they <coughs> want to make the company more socially responsible externally and to advocate for greater internal equity and shared responsibility within the company. Let me ask sure. about that. So, so if they're a minority union, they're not even, even you can't they won't even call that? themselves that. <laughs> right. But, but like, so you've got, you know, you got Google's got, you know, 200,000 employees. You got this group, but they got a lot of money, a couple thousand yep. software engineers, maybe each making a couple hundred grand a year. I mean, is Google even allowed to like, like meet with them and to go, remember the old days when we'd have those cases where you've got the employee participation groups and, and you're not supposed to treat them like a union. Well, I, what does Google do? Do they, can they negotiate with them, sit them down? How, how does it even work? No, I don't think they even seek to negotiate, but we can remember there is always meet and confer rather than bargain, uh, which is legit. Frankly, the, the thing that strikes me about AWU is that they seem oddly aligned with the company's interests. They're quite open about saying one of their goals is to have the employees feel good about working at Google and to have the public feel good about using Google products. But their interest is in having a say, is in having influence on the nature of the company uh, and, uh, and of the internal, as I say, the, the internal equity that they seek to, seek to have. So. They're using Section 7 more than negotiation. They're using external pressure. The fact that they know they have the public presence of Google gives them a platform to seek, advocate for social causes on the one hand and to have greater employee voice in company decisions. And this is where the conflict may occur. You know, there is militating about the nature of some of their products, facial recognition. Can you sell facial recognition to police? They want to have a voice in company decisions, and quite frankly, they haven't yet worked out the mechanism by which they can do that under the current frameworks. Clearly, the company can talk to whoever they want whenever they want because there is no certified bargaining representative. Let me ask you a question about that. So, you know, as you know, in Europe, a lot of these unions actually have seats on the board of these public mm. companies, right? You see all the big German companies, they, these well, unions have a seat at the table, right? So do you see that being this direction where maybe a Google or someone else goes, we're gonna have you guys pick somebody 
to be a member of the board to give us some input? Do you see that happening? Well, you know, in Germany, it's a matter of law that the union has to be on the board. It wasn't a uh, function of, of, of public pressure. Quite clearly, it seems to me that that is the direction that the AWU wants to go. But because of the unusual shape of many of the big tech companies, you know, all the, all the voting stock is in the hands of a couple of people. I, I don't see a board member, but I do see significant influence. I mean, AWU thinks of itself in a European context. As I, as I said, you know, for the labor historians, it's more like Keir Hardy, the founder of the Labor Party, than it is of Samuel Gompers, the founder of AFL-CIO. And that brings me to the next point of what is the future for these non-union unions? They seem to be the next new thing in tech, in, in big tech. Was it GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon? Because of the nature of the industry itself, because normal unionization doesn't seem to be the thing that will actually take root. But we now have a new NLRB general counsel, quite controversial. We will almost certainly have the withdrawal of the Uber memo so that we'll have be much harder to be an independent contractor and much easier to be an employee. I think there'll be a more generous interpretation of Section 7 rights so that the reach of the NLRA will go much deeper into non-union settings. But I just don't see traditional unions taking root in GAFA. And then there's a flip side. It's, it's, it's complicated. If you have more people being employees and you have more people getting the benefit of the protections of minimum wage and overtime and mandated benefits and protections of civil rights laws, at the very same time, you kind of reduce the need to have a union because you're getting, as a matter of law, many of the things you were militating for as part of your workers' union, your workers' center. So I don't know whether the need for a traditional union, which they don't want to start with, will actually satisfy the concerns of these workers. And many of the workers who are now independent contractors, for example, will be considered employees and get all these benefits. And I guess the only thing I can say, and I realize it's something of a cop-out, is that the reason they call it the future is that nobody knows what it's going to be. And all I can say now is I've seen my time is way up, and thank you for this opportunity to, to talk with you, and I'll be happy to answer your questions. No, Bert, that was fantastic. Um, it's really, it's just crazy. This is a new world here. And speaking of Very that, much. we're talking about the Biden administration. And, I, and Ed, I know you want to weigh in now. Ed Suarez Solar from Miami, Florida. Give us a little bit of a sense for how the new administration is going to impact all this. And also... A little bit about why social media is playing an important role and, and how the heck is Wall Street now? But I mean, you've got situations where investors are putting pressure on some of these companies to at least take a neutral position on unionization. Give us a sense for where we're going on that, Ed. Well, thank you, Steve, for, for having me on the panel today. So as we all know, President Biden has been a longtime supporter of the unions, of labor, and what makes that even more important as we are dealing with this issue today is that the Democrats, they control the House and the Senate. And so that makes you know, his influence even greater as, as we move forward. What I, what I find interesting also is as part of this support, uh, 
he's supporting the NLRB and its plan to increase the staffing of the board, being that they've seen a, a decrease over the years. And so that plays into really what our previous speakers and presenters have spoken about. And that's the issue that as more and more individuals are coming into the workforce, as they come into the NLRB itself, we're going to see a change in the NLRB in its technological abilities with this new generation coming onto the board. And, and, and people don't recognize how that increase in staffing is going to increase their technological abilities moving forward. As part of this support for organized labor that we see in President Biden, we also see in the fact that he has talked about creating a, a cabinet position, a cabinet level group to promote union organizing and collective bargaining. The actions that we've, we've spoken about a little bit with regards to the method in which he removed uh, Peter Robb as the general counsel, even though he had a 10 months left on his, on his term, he hadn't expired yet, it was kind of unprecedented. His nominee, Jennifer Abruzzo, Abruzzo was at one point special counsel for strategic initiatives for uh, CWA, the Communication Workers uh, Union. So as, as we look at these and you look at the, the movement that he's made, the changes that he's made, even as far as making McFern the, the chairperson as opposed to John Ring, that was done right away. The, these are things that kind of tell you where this administration is going with regards to its views on labor and its support of labor. Things that, th that we need to know about is that Mrs. Abruzzo at one point was the NLR NLRB deputy GC. She was the acting GC also prior to Peter Robb. She worked under the Obama administration, so she's very much in support of those policies. And as a GC, she also has a lot of broad discretion on cases that are gonna move forward within the board, within the NLRB, and uh, the things that she wants to, to address. Also interesting, which is also pretty unprecedented, is the fact that the acting general counsel, as they're waiting for Jennifer to be uh, appointed, has made quite a few changes. They rescinded 12 total guidance memorandums from the previous GC, Mr. Rob. And normally when you are an interim, in a lot of cases you take a, a lame duck type of approach waiting for the appointed person to take over. So I think that these are things that are, are quite interesting and are having a telling tale on where the Biden administration is going and what their, what their intent is. Now, having said that, I think that a lot of the actions that the Biden administration has taken, they did so because the very first thing they did was shut down that pipeline, which shut down a lot of union jobs. And they were trying to send a message to the unions that while the environmentalists and, and the folks won on that side of the, of the equation, the reality is we're here still in support of the union, and now we're gonna show you how we support the union. So things that we should know about, when there are changes within the NLRB and its rulings and so forth, 
It occurs through legislation, the laws change, case law, or rulemaking. And when we are looking at some of the things that we should see changes in that may be immediate, they may not, they may not be complete in its whole, but we will see parts of these things happening are things like, things like for example, compressed timeframes in elections. We, we will see these the, the compressed time that we saw during the Obama administration, where we're looking at uh, 24, 25 days before an election's held, versus when I started my career 30 years ago, we used to have 50 days, 51 days. So we're going to see a compressed time frame in elections. We're going to see, I believe, more use of mail ballots. And, you know, statistically, in mail ballots, um, we see a, a trend more towards the union than towards the company when it's a on-site election. And when we talk about mail ballots, because of the pandemic and people are feeling comfortable with mail ballots after just having the election, one of the things that we'll see is, does that mail ballot convert itself over time into an email ballot as part of, the, as part of technology, as part of this effort to organize in tech? Are we going to start seeing that? where instead of it being a paper ballot, it becomes an email ballot. Are we can I just ask about that for a minute? Two things. Yeah. Um, so it's saying that you think that post-pandemic, the Biden administration, number one, is going to try to move toward allowing these mail-in ballots even where there's no seemingly other justification for it? Is that what you think is going to happen? I think over time we're going to see that. I think what we're going to see is that because we are now comfortable with mail ballots, and even though mail ballots should have been the last resource used by the NLRB, I think we're going to see an expansion of that. I think we're going to see over time that whether people are remote, whether, you know, like especially in technology, they are remote, the mail ballot will be the method used. And my question is, are we going to see, because of technology, a conversion of the paper mail ballot to an email ballot, where you're going to be able to sign off via email. And I think that's going to be interesting when that topic is actually starts to get addressed as the NLRB tries to catch up to our technological times. Is that going to be the future? Think about this. We have these wonderful little things we call telephones, right? And we're, we're now paying credit cards, paying you know restaurants, paying our bills with our phones. You know, are we going to see this as a tool in the future with regards to the ballots? And again, it's, a, it's an unknown. That's why, like you said, the previous presenter, we're, we're looking to the future. But is that where it's going? Are we getting to the point where we are, we have, we have cracked because of the election, we have, we have cracked that seal, and now we're going to see that seal expand and expand and expand and if we have this seminar 10 years from now, are we going to say, okay, we're already at the email ballots or using the phone? So, Ed, as a management labor lawyer, what do you care? What do you care if there are mail-in ballots or email ballots? Does it matter to you in terms of your representation of companies? And if so, how? Well, it, it, it does to my client because realistically, when, when you go to the ballot booth and it's live, it's on site, 
We're seeing the people vote. We see people voting on their own without the influence of somebody there over their shoulders trying to persuade them or influence them to vote one way or the other. And as an employer, they can't go to your home, but the union can. We can have our captive audience meetings, but the union can be there at the time that the, the ballots get there, influencing the individual to vote one way or the other. It'll be for the union, of course. But those are the things that we lose control of who's influencing this person at the time of the vote. And that's very, very important. And we lose that with mail ballots, emails, or using cell phones. So I would say those are the concerns that we have. So there, there are a lot of things that we're, that we're seeing that are, are issues that we're gonna be dealing with. We've talked about joint employer, we've talked about protected concerted activity and how that rule is gonna potentially be expanded. These are all things that the NLRB is gonna be looking at. They're even looking at, well, like we talked about the, the, the captive audience that we're, we're, they're looking at, is that too coercive to an employee? These are the things that, that we, we, we need to be concerned with. With regards to social media, very important. You know, it's almost like a two-way standard right now. An employee has a lot more freedom to say things before they're able to get disciplined, where a company representative or management on their own personal website, they say or do something, and they're more restricted. And so those are things that we're, we're going to see that balancing of the NLRB and what position they're going to take. Are they going to expand that or try to make it more, more cohesive? And then the last thing that we're running out of time, dealing with investors. And this is what I'll tell you about investors, because I do a lot of labor audits during uh, and employment audits during MA work. And that is investors, when they're looking at investing money and they're looking for people to put money into their fund, they will look at all these social issues, the things that we're seeing in the news today, and they'll put pressure on companies with regards to investment. But interestingly enough, these same investors, when it's time for their funds to buy companies, one of the questions that they all ask is, are you unionized? Because if they're unionized, most investors recognize some restrictions and then want some discounts. And so they play on both sides of that equation. And the other part too is, we're also seeing that influence of Europe and European money and the funds from Europe, including some of the funds in this country, where they're saying, well, we want to make sure that your corporate culture supports what's happening in our society today. And then they back these companies under those pretexts. So yeah, I think yeah. troubling is you've got, well, troubling depends how you look at it is you've got all this multi-billion dollar pension funds, right? Public sector pension funds. These are all public sector unionized employees. Absolutely. That are billions of dollars in these tech companies, and they want the companies to at least take a neutral position on unions. It's interesting. Somebody just asked the question. It's almost like these invest these these they're almost like uh, investor activist groups. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. We're seeing with the money from Europe because in Europe they're very unionized. Here we're not, and so you'll see a website for Amazon that talks about how we support unions and they're doing that more for the European market, but it's on their website and now they're fighting them here. And so the, the funds are, are saying, don't do that. If you support them on your website, then you shouldn't be fighting and be neutral. 
before we give you money, before we give you $22 billion, this is what we need from you. So it's interesting to see how this is all playing out. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, you know, we're, we're right on schedule. I'm going to turn things over to Zach Weissman from Salt Lake City, Utah. Salt Lake is stealing all of our tech companies from San Francisco. Uh, well, Miami, I guess, Ed, you're doing the same thing, trying to get as many of our companies to move to your, uh, to your neck of the woods as possible. So, so, Zach, Utah, I know you've got a very powerful tech presence, particularly in Salt Lake City. So we want you to bring it home right now and tell us what do companies need to think about proactively if they want to minimize the risk of immunization. So tell us a bit about that. Give us some of your thoughts. Appreciate hearing about it. You bet. You know, no, no pressure. We've had all these great panels, and now my job is to tell everyone what to do about it. So I'll do my best. You're right. One of the things that's interesting for me is being here in this market in Utah, a very conservative state with a workforce that's been remarkably anti-union, even workforces that maybe would have benefited from unionization in, in this state have traditionally not been interested in, in unionization. But what makes this discussion, I think, so relevant for all the people who are attending is the nature of the, the, the tech sector, the, the employees who work in that sector are so mobile and move around so much that it's changed that analysis where I don't think you can be quite as regional as we used to be when we consider issues of labor law. Our tech sector here, affectionately known as Silicon Slopes, homage to our ski our ski industry and our tech side, you know, it's being filled with people from other states and other areas with different ideologies. So what do we do about it? And, and how do we minimize the risk? And the first thing, you know, the more things change, the more things sort of stay the same, I guess is what I would say. The first thing is to understand employee issues. And that's not always obvious to employers, in my experience. In an in a employee the job satisfaction survey that I saw ten, about 10 years ago, it was interesting because when they listed a number of job satisfaction criteria and asked the supervisors and managers to rank them and the employees to rank them, the employees' top three were being appreciated at work, feeling part of a team was number two, and number three was being helped with personal problems. In the list of 10 factors, those ranked 8, 10, and 9 by the supervisors and managers. Now, we have different issues we've been talking about today that may be important to employees, but I find it amazing that despite all the social justice topics we've had the last year, if you read about the unionization efforts at Amazon in Alabama right now, and you have all these celebrities going down, as Steve mentioned, and President Biden, what was the response from Amazon management? They said, we pay $15 an hour, we have great benefits, and we have lots of opportunity to advance. And, and those are the three factors that for a long time, have, again, have been misunderstood by employers to be the factors that employees care about. So in, in a strange sort of way, it seems like we're, we're dealing with the same problem again, where Amazon may not really be addressing the factors that are really driving the interest their employees may have in unionizing. So the, I think it's critical for employers to do these surveys a lot. One of the wonderful things we have now is technology. And in this sector, employees are very accustomed to responding to electronic surveys and very willing in that sort of anonymous manner of providing their opinions on all sorts of things. So I think it's critical for employers to do these kinds of surveys often and to see what these issues are so they can respond to them. Kind of exactly. You're involved in these surveys. Does that mean you try to claim that they're privileged in terms of the process and the results? And if so, how does that work? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't even I haven't had clients even try to claim privilege because 
you know, they want to use this information. They, they, they want to respond to this information, the clients that, that are smart about it. And so I don't think that's been the issue. I'm, uh, as far as confidentiality, I guess, that can happen because you don't really care who's saying it. What you're trying to do is get some sort of statistical data to determine what issues are most important. So you can you could guarantee confidentiality on the survey, you know, in various survey platforms. Well, um, what I mean more is, so let's say, for example, you're running the survey and you analyze the results and you want to give the board and the CEO, like in light of all of this stuff, here are the five recommendations that I'm making to you. Is that privileged? And there's some, is there some advantage to having a lawyer involved in that piece? So at least that part of the recommendation process is privileged. Just curious. Yeah, you know, and I, I haven't dealt with that, but I think there, that, that, does, that could make some sense. It depends though, because I think this generation and these workers in this sector value transparency. I think they would value the feedback of saying, we hear you, we listen, because I think that's one of the most important things about that. And I think that's how I've seen people using these surveys as a, say, a way to say, this is a safe place for you to tell us these issues. And it's it's a way for us to acknowledge what those issues are. But that's something you know that might might change depending on the employer. The, the second thing that people talk about a lot and they're being used a ton, including by Amazon, Google and others, are what they call union vulnerability indices or surveys. I think that's a little bit cynical because I think maybe even for this management side employer, it's a little too anti-union for my taste. I, I, I prefer to call them supervisor efficacy surveys. Because in my experience, and I think the experience of my colleagues here, the, the, the crack that opens in the door for unionization is almost always, in my mind, bad supervisors and managers, people who don't hear and respond to the concerns of the employees they supervise and manage. That is the crack that opens. And so what you see in these union vulnerability surveys are questions that I really love, questions like, am I comfortable discussing my concerns or issues with my supervisor? Is my work appropriately recognized and appreciated? Do I enjoy good quality of work-life balance? Is my boss respectful of other employees? These are the kinds of questions that will let you as an employer understand if you have issues on the line. Because what I've done many times when I've gone into these campaign situations is the employer says how great the place is. I'm talking to a, a C-level person and they tell me how great everything is, but you get down on the floor or in the trenches and you see dissatisfied groups of employees who have bad relationships with supervisors and feel unheard and, and misunderstood. And it's really important for upper levels of management to figure that out. And these union vulnerability surveys are a really great way to do that. Just real quick, you know, you, you hear this and some of the things about the National Labor Relations Act is not intuitive. So when I, when, I, when I make these first two points, I have some employers say, you know, great idea. And they kind of go down a road that Bert was talking about earlier about not minority unions, but they sort of want to set up their own employee councils and committees to, to hear concerns and to be proactive. And that sounds like, geez, that must be clearly must be in line with what uh, labor law would want because we're, we're engaging in some sort of process to, to address employee concerns. But you've got to be really careful about that because the act also prohibits unions from dominating or interfering with the formation of a union. And, and, and if you look at the genesis of the act, that was really intended to prevent what was called employer dominated unions or yellow unions that employers used to start to sort of obviate the need for a union. They would form their own little internal group of people to discuss issues. And that's going to be something I think you're going to see more of here in the future, more scrutiny about employers trying to be proactive in addressing these concerns so that unions have a better entree onto the workforce. The truth, the truth is, unions, the, the, the real play for a union is you need me as the union because you aren't effective in communicating with your employer. 
that's the play. So if if you're going to take suggestions, if you're going to get feedback, if you're going to if you're going to do these surveys, that's all well and good. If you're going to start forming committees and have more of an active type role in considering these issues, really seek counsel and, and make sure you run it by a lawyer because that could be problematic. Yeah. Let me jump in with questions. First of all, Utah, are you guys a right to work state? We are. Yeah. So one of the uh, questions is, how does that all factor into all this? You know, there are, the, the question was, we got like 15 or 20 right to work states. Does that impact any of the stuff we've talked about? So that's the first question, if you can answer, please. Yeah, I mean, it does impact it. It makes it less attractive for unions because in a right to work state, you know, it, it's easier for employees to sort of opt out of union participation. Now, the union, if they are elected in, then, then they, they, they still they still govern that. But one of the other things about right to work states is it makes it, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a non right to work state, you can, with your union rules, for example, require that members be in good standing to be employed. Okay, so like if there's a strike, I had this situation in a neighboring state in New Mexico, which is not right to work. If there's a strike, you can't break the line, right? Because if you break the line, you'll be not long, no longer in good standing. And if something is resolved, and the the workers come back, that worker may be prevented from from coming back. Whereas in Utah and other right to work states, that wouldn't happen. So it, the right to work thing that that's interesting, and I know that's a real battleground issue because it's certainly if you're not a right to work state you're going to have a lot more leverage and power as a union, both in negotiating, both in keeping all the people in the workforce in line and in keeping them in the union once the union's there. Okay, so there's one other question, and it's the whole issue of tips, right? We always teach our clients, don't threaten, interrogate, promise, or spy, right? Mm -hmm. So this question is, is that still a good recommendation? What the second is, I think is really interesting is, so doesn't that somehow impact the solicitation of grievances, which is kind of what you're doing through these surveys? And couldn't a union say you're undermining them and violating Section 7? I know it sounds a little technical, but it's interesting. Give us your take on that. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd have to be really careful doing a survey if a union was present. Like if there had been a petition for an election or if you had unions passing out cards, I think the survey could get problematic. You'd have to be really careful about it. Outside of that, though, it depends on the nature of the questions. I mean, you're not soliciting grievances. You're asking general questions about, you know, job satisfaction type areas that are much broader than that. So I think that's quite safe. But you're right. Once a union campaign starts or there's there's card signing going on, I think those kind of questions become problematic and you've got to be really watch it. So one last thing, let me just seize on really quickly. And it kind of goes again to Bert's sort of minority union stuff, but this is actual unionization technique and it's called micro unit organizing. For, for a long time, the way unions organized was what we used to call wall to wall organizing. They go into a factory or a warehouse and if they wanted to unionize, they had to file a petition for election, and then there'd be an election of basically all the employees that that employer employed in that warehouse or in that factory or what, what have you. During the Obama administration, the way that worked was different. They, they shifted the burden to an employer, and they allowed a union to go in and identify discrete micro units of employees within a larger employment setting and unionize just those employees. And the Obama administration board shifted the burden to the employer to demonstrate that the employees that were being left out of that election or left out of that unit had an overwhelming community of interest with the with the employees who were going to be in the unit, and thus there needed to be a wider spread election. Well, anytime as a lawyer we hear a word like overwhelming community of interest, we just know we lose because overwhelming is a pretty pretty big word. That was rolled back under the Trump administration to where there's now a balancing act, and the, the burden sort of shifted back to the union. And if they're going to have a micro unit, they had to show that there were meaningful distinct interests 
that outweighed the similarities between the employees that were being left out of the group. Now, what does that mean for all of you? What it means is I think there's this inclination for employers to organize their workforce in ways that make really good sense. And, and so, for example, if you had a bunch of developers and you decided you were going to take this group of developers and only have them work on this kind of a project with a different supervisor with different incentives and maybe some different some different pay structures and so on from the developers right next to them who have the same exact qualifications, the same exact training, hired the same way, you just happen to organize them that way. You would be opening the door, I think, for a union to come in and find that unit with a bad relationship with its supervisor and organize just that little group of people. I've had situations where you had 1,200 employees at an employer organized into, into 50 sections and a union came in and was able to organize five sections. Now imagine as an employer having 950 employees who are non-union and you know 350 who, who were and had their own collective bargaining agreement and all these people are working side by side every day in the same workforce, it's a tremendous tool for the union to use. So my last bit of advice that I'd add on, you know, understand your employee concerns, as we said, understand where you're good, where you need help with your supervisors, number two. And number three, take a look at your operational organization. Make sure you don't have any artificial distinctions between employees who have the same knowledge, skills, and abilities. Resist the urge to really separate them out in these discrete units, because I think that's a place where unions can take advantage and will take advantage come 2022 when there's a majority Democrats on the board. And this rule will, I think, inevitably flip back to what it was during the Obama administration and make it much easier. Well, Zach, thank you so much. Let's have, we've got a couple minutes left. Let's, uh, first of all, I want to thank all our panelists and let's have a little fun for a minute. I'd like folks to open up their mics when they want to say something. I'll, I'll just throw out one thing to start. Just sort of thinking out of the box, right? So most of us represent startups, right? Tech startups. A lot of tech startups, in addition to boards, have what are called board observers, right? Any thoughts on that? Let me throw it to Bert. Hey, Bert, what do, you, do you think that, A, there's any organizational legal problem with inviting one of these minority unions or employee participation groups to have a seat at the table, at least informally, as a board observer to give them a voice? Any thoughts on uh, that? My, my thoughts are kind of bifurcated. On the one hand, you're clearly responding to the interests of your employees if they have a workers' union or something like that. As an old uh, defense lawyer, an old uh, labor lawyer, I think it's a terrible idea because you've already given away, without getting anything back, one of the principal goals of many of the workers' unions. So it's a double-edged sword. And they can come out of the box here. I mean, isn't it also, since that's what they want, and they don't have a union yet, aren't you giving them something that is maybe their biggest ask, which A, minimizes the risk of formal unionization, and B, does give them a voice that a lot of companies want them to have now. Well, yes, absolutely. But the only question I have is, are you certain that the voices that you're hearing are representative of what the employees care about? One of the purposes of even having an AWU or a worker center is at least they represent a body of employees. Whether the board of, of observer can make that claim is something I am not aware of. You've got this group at Alphabet but they only have a couple hundred people. You know, they're not speaking on behalf of the 200,000. Nope. How, how do you figure that out? I wish I knew. I mean, that's one of the reasons we have union elections. <laughs> is, to, is to really test the will of the, of the employees and to see exactly where they stand and what they stand for. 
I think this balkanization, the, the especially healthcare, the micro units, is a is a much bigger threat to uh, to tech than minority unions and AWU because I think that is a means by which unions, the actual unions, can get certified unions within uh, certainly a startup and even some of the larger companies. But this is, so, as you said at the very beginning with your opening comments, I mean, this is an absolutely new area that is, in many respects, not encompassed by the existing law. And just to pick up on Ed's point, because of the termination of, of Rob, the NLRB is in complete turmoil. There are already lawsuits challenging the president's termination. There are lawsuits challenging every action of the of of Peter Orr, the acting uh, general counsel. I think the reason they haven't withdrawn the Uber memo is that they're waiting to November when they can have an official acting. But the board, and we're not going to have a hearing for Mr. Bruzo for a long time. We have an empty board seat. There's no nominee for the same reason. I mean, there is real turmoil at the board. And if you're looking for guidance from the board or the general counsel, you're going to have to wait a while. So, so given all that, again, trying to think out of the box, and I'd love to hear others on this too. I'm just going to make this up, right? So you're right. We've got a problem, Bert, and that 200 people can't possibly represent 200,000. So knowing that there are issues about employee participation groups, Section 7, dominating union, what if a company put together a survey monkey? They send it out to their 500 employees, and they say, you guys vote on somebody to be your representative. And if a majority of you pick somebody... We'll put that person on the board as an observer. I think I want to hear Zach on that because that comes close to the risk of a company-dominated union. Zach, what do you have to say? What do you think, Zach? I do get concerned about that. I think when when this is the kind of thing I think that, that unions don't want to have happen. And when you look at the Biden administration, I can see them tightening down on this. There was a case, you know, T-Mobile, what, 2017, that went back and forth. But I can see that being revived again, where they're, they're really going to limit the ability of, of employers to in any way take part in, encourage, fund, or, or sort of sponsor, if you will, the kind of relationship that looks any, at anything like sort of a, a collective bargaining relationship with a union. Thanks. Well, listen, I want to thank everyone. I know we're at the end of our time. I want to thank all of our panelists. This was super fun. We got a lot of good comments saying we wish this was longer. And I think Probably lesson learned here is maybe as the ELA being thought leaders will come out with some sort of a, uh, a white paper or some guidance on this because this isn't going away. As uh, as Bert said, the LRB is in turmoil. They don't know what to do with all this. So maybe we're going to have to take a leadership position in sort of helping our clients navigate all this. So I, I want to thank everybody for participating today. Thanks to our, our attendees for hanging in there for the hour and 15 minutes. I'm now going to turn things back over to Peter Waltz, our COO, to uh, wrap things up. Thanks very much. Thanks, Steve, and also to our panel for sharing their thoughts and advice on today's topic. If you'd like to connect with any of our lawyers on the program, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law. There you can also sign up to receive invitations to upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to our on-demand content, or use the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers, from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.